Uh, Evan Belgord, welcome to the program. Welcome to the Salmon Reveled um, podcast, uh, the anti-racist podcast, where we work together with uh, various leaders uh, of every kind to, to really address uh, the big issue of the day, which is, uh, again, uh, racism uh, uh, based on color and religion. And so, Evan, uh, you are the executive, uh, you are the, the, the CEO of of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Please talk about uh, uh, how you got into that position and your 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 kind of uh, vision and mission uh, leading up to the role that you currently have. Sure. So about five or six years ago, I was making a transition from, uh, from working in politics to working in journalism. Uh, and at that time, not a lot of people were covering this new rise of hate movements uh, in, in North America, but, but especially not in Canada. Um, so we saw around the, the general election around 2015, uh, a big uptick in, let's say, the number of hate groups and kind of online hate activity. Uh, and that is kind of a natural response in countries whenever somebody is elected that is perceived to be progressive or, or multicultural, there's often kind of this, this, this far-right backlash um, of organizing against the government and against um, what they perceive to be, you know, progressiveness, multiculturalness, and of course, very racist elements kind of in that organizing. So that's a fairly natural uh, occurrence, obviously not a good thing, but it's, it's, it's a pattern. Um, at this time, though, hate groups uh, in Canada were mostly being inspired by hate groups in Europe. Groups like Pegida and the Soldiers of Odin were explicitly um, anti, anti-Muslim, anti-Islam. Uh, so they didn't manage to get much of a foothold in Canada immediately, though. Um, there were a few attempts uh, by groups like the Soldiers of Odin to um, do some in-person activities, rallies, and things like that, and they were kind of um, stymied by anti-fascist uh, activists, uh, especially in Quebec, around that time period. So they didn't, they hadn't amounted to much yet beyond, you know, kind of spreading their hate online. Then came the election of Trump. Uh, and so when, when the Trump campaign was in full steam, we saw a, just a big explosion of these groups, both in number, members, and rhetoric and how much they wanted to organize. We saw a lot of that happening online, but still nothing had happened kind of on the ground in Canada yet. So as, as a new journalist, I was just paying attention to what was happening online, watching what was happening in the States, wondering, okay, are they gonna start organizing kind of in person here? And they did. Uh, and that was around when Rebel Media was in opposition to Motion 103, which was this motion uh, to condemn Islamophobia uh, before the House of Commons, and there's a lot of fear mongering around it, saying it was going to criminalize criticisms of Islam or, or kind of uh, dissent more broadly. And of course it wasn't, but it acted as a lightning rod and these uh, hate groups um, took to the streets. Um, so I was uh, uh, in Toronto, of course, and we saw uh, a number of these groups start demonstrating in front of Toronto City Hall. And again, I was a, I was a new journalist at the time, so I was covering this stuff, I was attending these demonstrations, and I was trying to tell the story and, and try to raise a bit of an alarm around what was what was happening. Because you attend these demonstrations um, and the hate groups and, and kind of their supporters and sympathizers that are organizing these things uh, are very prone to violence, right? They, they celebrate and encourage the use of violence against their opponents, whether those be uh, folks who are Muslim or anti-racist and, and anti-fascist who would 
demonstrate against their organizing. Uh, and their rhetoric, um, you know, at first I started calling this an anti-Islam thing because that's what they were calling it. And I was kind of naive at the time. So they were saying, you know, this is just, you know, we're just being critical of the religion. We're just being critical of the negative parts of the religion, et cetera, et cetera. And that just wasn't true um, because, you know, you'd see, you'd, they'd, you'd see them have other forms of racism as well. And I, I saw them firsthand misidentify people with brown skin as being Muslim who were not Muslim, right? So you know, it, it became clear to me within the first few months of covering this, that this wasn't a question of, you know, let's say responsible nuanced critiques of, of one religion or another. It really was just kind of naked racism. And so at that part, I started calling it the anti-Muslim movement. And, and many, many kind of months later, that started to catch on and other people started using that in their language and in their reporting. But I was pushing for it at the time because they were really trying to whitewash this is just being kind of like against the religion when it wasn't just that, right? It was really, there was a lot of racism baked into it. So I was still, a, a, like I said, I was, a, I was a new journalist at the time. Um, I was starting to get a bit of attention around my work and, and speaking with a number of, of advocates, researchers, other journalists um, about the issue. And it kept escalating, right? We kept seeing more and more kind of hate activity and hate groups. So. I was using a resource at the time called Anti-Racist Canada, and it was this blog who was run by a school teacher from Alberta named Kurt Phillips. And he'd been running this blog on his own time for about a decade, uh, and it just basically tracked uh, what are hate groups up to. So everything from you know the assaults and the murders carried out by um, by neo-Nazis and, and neo-Nazi terrorist groups, to starting to cover this this anti anti-Muslim movement. And of course, just as a little little sidetrack here you know, 2015, it's not like all this racism and this hate just started. I mean, that groundwork had been laid by xenophobic comments made by prominent figures in Canada, by what had happened um, with the growth of anti-Muslim hate groups in Europe and things of that nature. So it, it didn't come out of nowhere, right? But, but what was new about 2015 and 2016 moving forward was just how bold they got, how comfortable they felt, speaking in the mainstream about their hateful views and how comfortable they felt to um, organize in real life and hold demonstrations. And in some cases, um, even like stakeout mosques, um, quote unquote, to like look for terrorist activity, which is just ridiculous. Um, so we're looking across Canada. I'm looking, I'm like, who else is doing this work across Canada? And there were great anti-racist and anti-fascist and community groups who were doing stuff um, in their local area, right? But not all of them were doing the kind of deep, let's, let's say like deep dive monitoring. Not all of them were like kind of infiltrating hate groups online or keeping good track of what their activities were. And not all of these, these groups or these activists had um, as easy access to, to the media or to, to journalism. So, you know, then we look around the world and we see, you know, in the United States, there's an organization like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which acts as a watchdog on hate groups. In the UK, there's Hope Not Hate. So, you know, we're looking across Canada, we're like, what's, what's the equivalent of that here? Um, and it became, you know, I'm talking to the researchers, I'm talking to people who advocated a lot against hate groups in the 90s and early thousands. And the answer was, there just wasn't anything that was kind of professionalized and organized and across Canada. So we saw, we saw that and we said, you know, if we want it to exist, we're going to have to be the ones to create it. And that's what we did. So that was about three years ago, we founded the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Um, since then, we've had a number of successes. We've shut down some neo-Nazi podcasts. Um, we, the Yellow Vest Canada movement, for example, which you know ripped off this thing, this anti-austerity movement in France. 
um, was led by anti-Muslim hate groups. Um, every single hate group we, we tracked basically got involved in it. And, you know, after several months of reporting on that, eventually, um, you know, mainstream politicians were um, decrying them and eventually media reports were getting it right that it wasn't just about oil and gas. Um, so, you know, we've had, we've had a number of pretty good successes since we started. The government's now consulting with us on what to do about online hate on major platforms such as Facebook. Um, so in the interim, you know, most of our work is kind of capital J journalism and capital A advocacy. We, um, we advocate for the changes that we want to see, but we also ring alarm bells and use journalism to kind of support the, the advocacy, right? So we go out there, we find out what's going on, we infiltrate hate groups, we make people aware of what they're saying and what they're planning, and then we advocate for ways to, uh, to counter it. And, you know, you brought an interesting point, um, this distinction, is it anti-Islam or anti-Muslim? And uh, as you know, in the Middle East, there, there are people that look as uh, white Caucasian as anybody. So if you would happen to see a Syrian person or a Palestinian person or a Lebanese person, they, they're very, uh, very much similar complexion to Europeans. So, and Turkish, uh, the Turkish uh, community as well. So again, um, uh, skin color is, is one thing, but one, one key issue in terms of this work and, uh, and how hate groups have gotten a huge life online with social media forums like 8chan, 4chan, their ability to espouse their views, to unite, to find a huge audience uh, that, that agrees with their views, not only in the United States, not only in Canada, but Europe as well. So this trans transnational white supremacy that uh, is uniting these groups all across borders, and it seems like a common thread is uh, anti-Muslim uh, bigotry as a way to say that's an ex existential enemy and the great replacement theory is is one of their core kind of philosophies that justifies uh, advocating for violence against muslims now in toronto uh, a caretaker of a mosque was uh, was killed uh, his throat was slit by um, a far-right group uh, i believe it was called the nine angels maybe we can talk about these groups in canada that are operating and uh, so some are, are distinct how are they how are they different uh, if it's Adam Waffen, if it's uh, if it's uh, the soldiers of Odin, the three percenters, and the and uh, this uh, strangely disturbing group, the the Nine Angles, which is a satanic Nazi cult, which seems like like right out of fiction. So let's maybe talk about how, however you want to talk about each of these groups and what their similarities and differences are. Sure. I mean, I'd start with movements because what we're increasingly seeing is a little bit different from the 90s and the thousands. The hate ecosystem today is really it's movement based. So groups will emerge out of the movements, but the movements themselves um, exist without specific kind of groups. Um, so kind of to discuss that we, we have different hate movements in Canada, all of which I'll just kind of broadly refer to as the far right or the racist right. But we have a number of hate movements in Canada. We have um, the anti-Muslim movement, we have this anti-LGBTQ plus movement, um, we have, you know, a movement of individuals who, who organize around their hatred of women, that, that being the involuntary uh, celibate movement and other hate movements. Um, the emergence uh, I touched on of the anti-Muslim movement kind of driven by uh, the rhetoric of rebel media, but also kind of hate coming out of Europe, that anti-Muslim movement has moved on to other things. 
um, they, when M103 meant that the sky wasn't falling, um, they changed their criticism to be of the liberal government and leftists and anti-fascists more generally, and the anti-Muslim stuff kind of simmered. Uh, when the issue is the police murder of George Floyd, you'll see more and more anti-Black racism. When the issue is what's wet and solidarity blockades and indigenous lives, you know, the conversation will be around um, using their cars to run through demonstrators who are blocking intersections and things like that. And today it's COVID. So they jump onto whatever the hot topic is, but I still keep referring to them as the anti-Muslim movement because that's their DNA. That's what they were born out of. And no matter what they're kind of hating on and criticizing, you'll still find plenty of comments that are, uh, you know, explicitly racist towards, towards Muslim folks. So that's kind of like their baked in DNA. And we've had several groups, we have a lot of groups in Canada and they kind of spring up, merge, split, die on a very regular basis. So it's actually kind of hard to keep anything like a comprehensive list of them, but some have been more durable than others, right? So uh, the soldiers of Odin are still around. They were, uh, it's, it's primarily an anti-Muslim group. They were founded by a self-identifying neo-Nazi from Finland. And here in Canada, um, especially in the early days, a lot of their organizers and organizations were explicitly neo-Nazi. Um, that changed a bit where um, they didn't want to keep paying dues to the original chapter in Europe. And also they didn't want to be called Nazis all the time. So some of the groups kind of split off. And at that, so the Soldiers of Odin has been a very fragmented kind of series of groups since then, where I, I don't, I'd even go as far as to say, it's more accurate to say there are a bunch of individual groups than one group today. Um, but I mean, every one of them who continues to use the name, the Soldiers of Odin, is hearkening back to that anti-Muslim and neo-Nazi um, thing that they were born out of. And they, they choose to keep that name, right? Like that's a distinct choice. Because if the KKK came into your neighborhood and said, oh, we're not that KKK, you know, you'd still be pretty upset about it. The same thing with the soldiers of Odin today. So they're still around and they're doing things to kind of whitewash their image like uh, needle pickups or sometimes like uh, uh, donation drives around around Christmas. They still, they do things like that, but that's a very common kind of far right tactic. Golden Dawn in Greece did the same thing. Um, all sorts of hate movements do the same thing where they'll do some charitable work. Uh, there's another neo-Nazi group, um, neo-fascist neo-Nazi group in Quebec called Atalon, and they engage in the same thing. They'll give out food to homeless people, but only to white homeless people, right? It's, and it's part of their, it's part of what they do. So yeah, I mean, there's, um, are there any groups in particular you'd like me to touch on? Cause there's, there's, there's quite a number of them. So I'll need a little, little direction if you want me to comment on anyone's yeah. position. Well, well, let's, let's talk about soldiers of Odin because um, they, they actually protested uh, a mosque here in, in British Columbia in the city of Surrey, the Surrey Al Jamia mosque. So they had their megaphone. And uh, we worked with the uh, Canadian, um, or sorry, the RCMP hate crimes team. And uh, in a previous interview with their uh, lead uh, uh, officer, his name is uh, Corporal Anthony Statham, he says one thing unique about uh, Muslim communities is uh, is protest, that uh, people come to protest mosques. That, that is a very unique thing for any religious group to have people come protest their place of worship. So that is our experience of soldiers of Odin here. So let's maybe talk about them, like in terms of across Canada, like, like you're saying, some of them, they grow, they die, they splinter, they, they, now in terms of like Ontario being the, the, the most densely uh, populated uh, province in Canada, 
so population and then how it is out east compared to out west and and then the other thing i would like to bring up is alberta which has seen a a, a a whole slate of attacks on on muslim women that wear hijab uh and they they've been attacked in public verbally physically um and then here in british columbia uh several muslim women in hijab typically on transit is where they they've been attacked so let's let's talk about the influence of, of these far-right groups here out west in in british columbia and alberta Sure. So um, like you'd expect, where there's more population, you're going to find more hate groups. And, and I often talk about this as being kind of fundamental to the understanding of how hate operates in Canada versus the United States. So Canada, you know, this has been said ad nauseum, but Canada is not special. You know, we're not especially nice on, a, on like a per capita basis. You know, we're not that much better than the United States. What's different is that in the United States, within like a four hour drive, you're going to be able, there's going to, there's going to be living like twice as many people as all of Canada, right? You're, you're, you're within like four major population centers within a four hour drive. So when they want to get together and have a hate rally or something, it looks way larger. And it, like, you can see it on TV and it looks way bigger than it does in Canada, but proportionately, you know, it's a very significant problem here too. And we see the greatest kind of, um, it's a hate group organizing occurs in uh, Ontario, Quebec, BC, Alberta, and, but, and there's been a, a kind of a sharp uptick on the East Coast. Um, still not as significant in raw numbers, but a very, very significant uptick on the, on the East Coast. Um, and speaking about Alberta for a second, you know, we just did some polling uh, on uh, how significant do people think online hate is in Canada and what should be done about it is broadly speaking what the poll is about. And we found that in Alberta and Saskatchewan, people were much more likely to report hate and racism not being uh, as significant of an issue and also to oppose, um, more likely to oppose measures to combat it. Um, so there is there is an issue there. And of course we've seen, as you mentioned, that um, uh, several women who wear hijab have been uh, assaulted in, in, recent, in recent weeks. Um, in BC, uh, we're seeing a really sharp in, uh, increase in anti-Asian hate crimes. It being, you know, uh, Vancouver in particular being one of the densest populations uh, of Asian folks in um, in Canada, uh, particularly um, particularly Chinese Canadians. So we're seeing kind of a sharp uptick there as they bear the um, the brunt of hate inspired by, let's say, let's call it COVID misinformation. Um, so we're seeing that right now. BC has also had um, a very long history of, of neo-Nazi activity going back to the 90s and thousands. Um, you know, it really was, it really was like uh, Alberta, BC and Ontario back then that was very, very active. Um, and some of that still remains, you know, we, we still track some neo-Nazis from back in the day and, and really awful ones that, for example, lit somebody on fire. Um, you know, we're still tracking, tracking them and they still uh, they still exist um, in BC, and you're going to find chapters um, of larger groups or or, uh, or larger. Let's call them hate. Let's call them brands. And you're going to find chapters of these larger brands, like the Soldiers of Odin, um, across Canada, including in in BC and particularly in Alberta. And in Alberta, a group called the Three Percenters, a paramilitary group that is doing arms training. Uh, for some perceived Muslim invasion or uh, so 
is, is the goal uh, expulsion of Muslims, killing of Muslims? Uh, what, 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 is, what is the objective? Um, the reason I bring it up in our research when we did our transnational forum on white supremacy terrorism, the, the perpetrator in New Zealand um, with the, the, the white replacement, the great replacement theory, that uh, part of it was to advocate for killing wholesale men, women, children, elderly. So that's, that's, that's a very disturbing kind of thought process where, uh, like sadly, I, I, I think I suffered from PTSD watching the video of the, the, the GoPro and him doing what he did. He had no hesitation, no mercy. He was, he was planning this for two years. So with that kind of ideology permeating through, throughout all these groups, getting back to the three percenters, it, it does seem like uh, a violent uh, kind of uh, 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 objective uh, against Muslims, immigrants, and, uh, and others that they hate. If we could talk about that kind of philosophy and the three percenters and kind of what they're preparing for possibly, is that in line with, with what we've just kind of discussed? Yeah, so the three percenters have been around for quite a long time, longer in the United States. Um, there were members of a three percenters group who were convicted because they were planning on uh, bombing slash burning down this uh, refugee center of sorts. Um, here in Canada, uh, they at one point they were staking out at least one mosque and they would be going into, uh, into nature to practice um, uh, to practice like a paramilitary, right? They'd be doing drills, shooting drills. They'd be doing other kind of survival training. Um, and that's doesn't make them super unique, but that is a big part of the three percenters DNA is this idea that um, the world is going to hell. And when that happens, they're going to kind of be this armed force that's going to protect their own. So they're, they're preppers. It's, it's, it's kind of a big part of their, of their ideology. One of uh, the main leaders of the three percenters, and they've gone through their own their own splits and in different provinces, they'll have different leadership, things like that. But one of their main leaders um, actually said, you know, and we're, we're in some of the private Facebook groups uh, and I'm quoting here, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. So that is that is coming from like the head of the three percenters and it, it kind of does kind of represent some of their ethos. Are they directly saying that they want to be the ones to carry to genocide? Yes and no. There's definitely those like genocidal promoting comments within them. They're more so like like you mentioned the great the great replacement, right? So it's a conspiracy theory that there are shadowy elites uh, who are um, changing society through media, through laws, through governments, so on and so forth, um, to make it so that white people don't have as many kids and simultaneously bring in immigrants from other countries to like replace the, the, the white race. So it's not like a nuanced conversation of where demographics in a country are going, right? Because it's a conspiracy because they're attributing like a master plan behind it. And if you think that the people running that master plan are like the Muslim Brotherhood or some other Muslim organization, then you get something like like the three percenters, right? Um, and others, other hate groups will actually think that it's the Jews controlling the Muslims coming in to do white genocide. But either way, I mean, white genocide, whether you're talking a, a neo-Nazi anti-Semitic group or you're talking a primarily anti-Muslim group, it's the same theory. It's just who's ultimately pulling the strings. So that's, and it's really important, the role of conspiracy in these hate movements. You can't get somebody to go out and commit 
an absolutely horrific act of slaughter without first pumping them up. And the way you do that, and the way these hate movements do it is they convince them that there's this existential threat. They convince them that it's basically like the apocalypse. And if you do nothing, then you know white people are all gonna die out and be replaced by, by the people they don't like, in this case, Muslims. Um, so you convince them that there's this apocalyptic problem and there's somebody to blame and there's a solution, right? And the solution in the case of Christchurch terrorist, of course, was terrorism. It was a mass murder attack. Um, so that's how we get incidents like that. It comes down to this, um, this conspiracy theory that you referenced, the, the, the white genocide or white replacement conspiracy theory um, is what has inspired this terrorist attack and others. And, and with Alexander Bissonnette in, uh, in Quebec and Quebec City, and uh, I think some of the, the photos of him wearing a, a MAGA hat, a Donald Trump uh, uh, cap. And, uh, and uh, I, I think there's a common kind of you know, getting uh, indoctrinated online by, by these forums. And with QAnon and uh, conspiracy theories right online, and, and also state actors that want to foment dissent amongst uh, racial groups, uh, religious groups and uh, memes and uh, articles trying to to kind of sow division amongst uh, people like uh, getting back to Quebec City was he affiliated with uh, any of these far-right groups or, or was he just a lone uh, kind of person not necessarily physically affiliated but online indoctrinated with uh, a lot of this uh, content online to kind of uh, as you said uh, uh, kind of amp, amp him up uh, with with all this uh, uh, kind of fear mongering and and prompt him to do something about that. Is that an accurate uh, statement? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's not really a, any such thing as a lone actor, right? I mean, we, we are all we all live in society and are creatures of society and are impacted by, you know, what's going on in the national consciousness and the national conversation. In this case, Alexandre Bissonnette was consuming um, anti-Muslim sentiment, some of it quite mainstream, others a bit more fringe, but still easily accessible content. And speaking of the conspiracy theory, the content that he's consuming is saying, you know, there's this apocalyptic situation happening, right? Um, with Muslim immigration or, um, you know, uh, white people being replaced, right? So he's, he's become convinced that he's a savior, he's doing a good thing by going out and committing like a, like a mass atrocity and a mass attack. And this is uh, one of the parts of my job I hate the absolute most is, you know, we can look at his, uh, who he reads on social media, we can see that, you know, he's, he's, he's following these anti-Muslim figures. And then he goes out and acts on the fear that they've put in him, right? And those people who put that fear in him are never gonna be held responsible um, for the murders that he did. Uh, when they do bear some responsibility for it because, you know, they're spreading um, lies and misinformation and hate propaganda. And when people act on it and people will act on it, um, they escape responsibility. So that's, that's one of the hardest things and why, you know, there's no really such thing as, as a lone actor. I mean, these people who carry out these atrocities, um, it's everything from the mainstream messaging from kind of far right, but still mainstream sources down to the most extreme propaganda that gets them right but it's an entire it's an entire ecosystem um and once you know you start engaging with um, mainstream hateful figures 
um, social media algorithms and stuff are going to throw you more and more kind of extreme content until you're going out and seeking out some of the most extreme content. Uh, and there's awful repercussions. And, and now getting to organized uh, groups that are well-funded. So whether it's Act Now or Rebel Media or groups that are, that are very organized, um, they, they have a, a systematic approach, uh, uh, media uh, programs, events, and, uh, and, and funding. Uh, let's talk about how these groups are, are really, they, they're funded, they're mobilized, they, they're, they, they're, they're motivated, uh, how they're kind of like the, 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 the engine that, that propels uh, this heat uh, online and off. Yeah, so the funding is a really difficult question. Um, so groups that might be operating in the United States uh, as, as charities or nonprofits have to disclose more than groups do in Canada. So we don't know the sources of funding for several of these um, large organizations like Act for Canada or, or Rebel Media, which is not a charity, of course, but we don't know too much about their sources of funding. What we do know, though, is that Rebel Media, for example, uh, they put out some posts just before Christmas saying that somebody just called in, I think it was like a $300,000 um, debt or something on them. And they were able to crowdsource that funding um, within a week or so, right? So there's, there's an amazing ability for them to raise money because fear is a powerfully motivating tactic. And kind of as anti-racist groups and anti-hate groups and on the left, we don't have the same ability or we're perhaps more principled than to, to than to purposely like try to cause alarm in order to uh, raise money, right? Like we don't get me wrong, we, we publish things that are alarming and concerning, but we don't take it to the nth degree that we, you know, are telling people that the sky is falling, which, which a lot of these places are there. That's their constant message. The sky is falling, give us money or else, you know, it'll fall on you. So they have an amazing ability to, um, to raise funds that we can't really match. Now there's a bit of good news in that, you know, we just found out yesterday that rebel media got demonetized on YouTube and they claim that that's going to cost them something like three or $400,000. And I don't, of course, you know, you got to take everything that rebel media says with a grain of salt, but you know, at least that's, that's a piece of good news there. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> as groups that counter them, you know, we need, we need to be figuring out ways to, um, leverage our, you know, much, much kinder, much, much more uh, conscious um, uh, audiences to give us money to, to kind of push back against hate. And, and also critical avenues of the fight um, against racism is the legal uh, channels. And uh, we had a good opportunity to meet your, your colleague, Richard Warman. And, uh, and how he, as a lawyer, has uh, successfully sued a lot of these groups and, and, and engaged in litigation to, to, to stop uh, certain aspects of, uh, of their work. If we could talk about the legal aspect and the legal uh, tools that, that can be used to, to combat this. Sure. So, I mean, um, legal stuff is tricky because sometimes it works, often it doesn't, and it's very expensive. So I can give a few examples. Um, there was a neo-Nazi collective that was um, saying some of the worst and most defamatory things you could say about myself and, and our organization um, online. And, uh, and there are actually two different collectives um, making this stuff up and saying this stuff. Um, so I sued them. 
and both of them disappeared because they didn't want to be served and they never reemerged. So that was a success. Here's the downside, right? That cost a lot of money. And of course we can never collect on them. So we essentially like, was the outcome good? Yes. Very expensive though. Um, and then you have cases like um, uh, Paramount Fine Foods uh, proprietor, Mohammed Faki, who, who has, you know, he's a wonderful philanthropist. Um, he was being defamed by this individual named Kevin Johnson. Now, Kevin Johnson has been this hate vlogger that primarily targets Muslims, women, and trans people. And he's been doing it for as long as, like five years. He's been doing this for at least five years. And he's actually been charged with the willful promotion of hate. And it's extremely rare charge to lay. And we can talk about the criminal in a minute. Um, he's also lost other defamation cases. And in this case, um, he and somebody else in his video suggested that, uh, that Muhammad was a terrorist um, and that you would have to uh, be willing to sexually assault somebody in order to eat um, at his restaurant. So it was just wildly defamatory racist stuff. Uh, Muhammad Faki actually sued him and successfully. Uh, and actually the judge called it hate speech at its worst and awarded a $2.5 million uh, finding in, in, in damages, right? Um, just last week, uh, uh, Johnson is running around saying, you know, he's running for mayor of Calgary and he's saying, oh, I got this coffee brand now called Mayor Mud, referring to Calgary Mayor Nenshi. And, and saying, I got this, oh, I got this other coffee brand called uh, Wasted Native, and it's just a really awful caricature of, of an Indigenous person touching on kind of anti-Indigenous racist tropes. So that is to say, he hasn't learned his lesson at all. He still hasn't seen trial for, for his willful promotion of hate, that, that criminal charge. And he doesn't care about the defamation law, because at the end of the day, the legal system is effective if you have money, and if the people that you know you're using the legal system against have you know an ounce of shame, and if that doesn't exist, right? If they feel like you know they're just not going to stop no matter what, our kind of civil legal system um, fails because there's no kind of follow through on the consequences, right? I mean, Johnson has a court order not to defame Muhammad anymore, and in the last couple of weeks, he keeps going around calling Muhammad a child killer. Uh, so, I mean, I think I understand Muhammad's probably going to try to get, get him on that at this point and go back to the courts and ask for them to enforce that court order. But my point being that legal tools, um, they don't always work on the worst of the worst offenders who just have absolutely no shame. Uh, so it's, it's one tool in our toolkit, but it has to be used, um, kind of judiciously given, given its cost, given its time frames, and given that it doesn't always work. And and now the the other largest avenue of hate dissemination on social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, Twitter, um, all these forums that are spreading hate uh, around the world so fast in such uh, numbers, uh, reaching millions and millions of people almost instantaneously. And uh, and the one thing is lone lone individuals that that are perpetrating hateful comments against individuals and groups. But now we have very large, very well funded uh, social media platforms that uh, uh, seem to be selectively taking down hate speech. So certain groups, um, uh, their content that, that is uh, offensive is, is taken down, whereas uh, 
from what I'm seeing from our perspective and some research uh, done by Heidi Byrich, Dr. Heidi Byrich, who's formerly of the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Facebook in particular looks like there's a double standard when it comes to hate uh, against Muslims uh, propagated online, case in point, Myanmar or India or other places. That, that content, for whatever reason, the, the reason for not taking it down is uh, newsworthiness and freedom of speech, but other groups uh, seem to, uh, it, it seems to be a double standard. Uh, perhaps we can talk about this, this, this huge aspect of how hate is being disseminated and certain double standards social media companies have in, in uh, policing hate on their platforms. Sure, so I mean, to start on it, I mean, social media companies are not acting in good faith. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll particularly speak about Facebook here. Um, there's a lot of confounding issues here. I mean, there's been a lot of whistleblowers coming forward from Facebook saying, you know, we have the ability to address this. We're not addressing this. Um, they're, you know, they claim that there's a lot less hate in their platform than we know that there is. They claim that their reporting of hate uh, results in that hate content being taken down and often it doesn't. Um, and generally speaking, I mean, even when they do do anything, it's often too little too late. Like they allowed QAnon to grow on Facebook. It wouldn't have grown quite so prestigiously without, you know, the Facebook and Facebook algorithm promoting it for so long. And then when they do remove it, it's, you know, it's too late. They're not removing the users, they're removing the groups and the users can just find each other again and make new groups. So it's not particularly effective. Then you have, you have other issues like, for example, even as bad as moderation is on Facebook, it's much better in English than in any other language. I mean, they barely have content moderators in, in other languages. So you, you'll have issues like with what's happening in India, for example, and which Facebook would put much less of a, would be able to put much less resources to. Well, that's a choice they've made, right? They don't have as many um, non-English speaking, as much non-English speaking moderation. Fundamentally, the, the solution is difficult because Facebook is going to continue to operate as they operate. They have, you know, the political power and money of, of, of a small country, right? If not more than that. And, and they, they, make, they make deliberate choices. Um, they're facing regulation right now here in Canada. Uh, and what we're trying to do is, is the government is going to put forward a piece of legislation that addresses quote unquote online harms. It's going to include things like child pornography, uh, but also for the purpose of our, our conversation, it's going to include online hate. And we don't know exactly what's going to be in that legislation yet. The government consulted with us and with many others to ask, you know, what do you think should be in it? And, and we made one really kind of clear point. There is so much hate that having individuals look at each indi like piece of it to determine what is hateful and what is not uh, is insufficient, right? It's just it can't possibly keep up with just how often hate is posted. So any solution has to require um, companies to proactively take down hate speech, harassment, and threats. And even if we just started with the really obvious examples of like celebrating violence towards groups, uh, racial slurs, and um, and you know like targeted harassment campaigns based on somebody's uh, background, if we just started with really basics, it would actually it would it would make quite an impact. And then we we could move on from there. But like let's just start with the basics. Um, but our feeling was you know companies have to be forced to proactively remove it or face fines. And I don't mean like slap on the wrist fines that just become a cost of doing business. I mean, fines that put the, the company's existence into, into jeopardy, right? Like they need to actually be fined to the point that they decide that being, you know, a productive part of our society or, or at least a marginally responsible part of our society 
is in their best financial self-interest because that's the only way they'll they'll make any change there. Now, again, we don't know exactly what's in that legislation. We expect it to come out in uh, April or May. If it doesn't get pushed again, it's actually supposed to come out. It's supposed to be out by now, but we, so it should be out in April or May. Uh, and then we'll kind of push the government. There's going to be an independent oversight body. Uh, and of course, we do have to be have some concerns about free speech and free expression, right? Um, those are important values and, and they protect kind of all of us. Now, hate speech is not free speech. We've got to make sure that their companies aren't kind of going so far that they're accidentally removing things that aren't hate speech. So this independent regulator should hear appeals from people who think their content was taken down in error, but not the other way around. Some people are suggesting that the victims of hate speech, rape threats, death threats should have to go to a regulator, fill out a bunch of forms, and then have that regulator go to the social media company to ask them to take the content down. That's backwards, right? Because why are we, why are we putting more onus on the victims here when the company is already putting the hate out? Like the companies have to remove it. And if they don't proactively, then we should be finding, uh, finding them a lot. And in terms of regulators, uh, now it, it seems like a lot of uh, politicians and world leaders espouse hateful views, um, whether it's in France currently with the, the crackdown on the Muslim community in France, um, in the United States, uh, it seems like uh, the Republican Party, um, uh, a lot of their element, the far right element is, is definitely uh, espousing hate and uh, the previous president uh, uh, did nothing to, to or more inflamed it rather than, than quelled it. And with a Muslim ban, actually just saying it's a Muslim ban, it just perpetrates in, in, in the general public that, that it's something to be feared, Muslims are to be feared, the religion is to be feared. So now with actual government officials that have these type of views, um, uh, I know it's a, it's a huge kind of, like in terms of getting policy, changes and, and especially as a lot of these social media companies are based in the United States and uh, in, in terms of Donald Trump's election, the, uh, the Facebook from our research bent over backwards to help them to not seem partisan uh, against the, the Republican Party. So they almost seem like they are uh, willing to appease uh, uh, far right elements of, of the Republican Party. And so um, in the United States is where all these companies are based and the, the meaningful regulation needs to happen from there, but the political will in, in the process and the great divide that's happening between left and right, Democrats and Republicans, is it, is it realistic to think that meaningful regulation could happen in the current climate in the United States that could affect the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, that's tricky. That's that's one of the big stumbling blocks here is that they're always going to hide behind um, US law. Um, but what, what we can do is, you know, if if we put in the, these this rules against hate content, right, um, we can get our allies to, to follow suit. Um, we're already kind of in conversations with the UK, Australia, a few other places kind of talking about coordinating our approach to Facebook and other social media companies. So if, if enough of, if, if enough countries come forward with these kind of rules and regulations, Facebook will have to apply them um, more broadly. Like they'll have to invent, like they have the ability to do this, right? I mean, they're a very smart company, but they'll have to like turn on that kind of content moderation and the algorithms and figure out, they have to make that system work when there's a few countries that, um, are requiring it of them, right? 
Um, I'm also pushing, I, I doubt it'll make it into the government's bill, but I think that, you know, it's, it's something we have to seriously consider um, is if they do not pay their fines, if they do not follow the laws as written by our country, at what point do we turn the tap off on them, right? And just how difficult is that going to be going to be to do politically? Can we allow this giant company that doesn't follow our laws to operate in our country if they're doing so in like a discriminatory manner? And how upset are people going to be if we turn off their access to to Facebook or block Facebook from sending hate propaganda to Canadians, right? I mean, that that is, I don't think it'll get to that point, but that's kind of the ultimate question here is, do we have the stomach to shut them down? Um, I don't have the answer to that. That's a very difficult political question. Um, but, you know, I'm hopeful that with these kind of online harm legislation that, that Facebook will play ball well enough once we put these rules on them. One thing that's also not being discussed nearly enough in the context of this is, you know, we're talking about the big platforms. So that's the most important thing to talk about. It is because that's where hate reaches everyday normal people, right? Thanks. And, and thanks in part to things like Facebook's algorithm. But what about the smaller platforms that are specifically designed to host hate speech, by which I mean DLive, BitChute, um, Gab, uh, and there's a myriad of other smaller ones, right? These, uh, these companies, why would we have any faith that they're going to like either pay our fines or follow our rules or anything like that? They're not going to, right? So we need to be talking about things like international criminal sanctions for people who are purposely flaunting our law um, and or, uh, you know, prohibiting them from importing hate propaganda into Canada, by which I mean blocking the IP address of their site from, uh, you know, Canadian internet companies, right? So that they can't push their hate into Canada. So we got to be prepared to uh, take some steps today to like address the big social media companies, stuff like that. But we got to be prepared to back that up with a stick later on if, if they continue to prove themselves to be, you know, bad actors and unwilling to take meaningful action. And, and with uh, uh, Donald Trump in particular being uh, banned from Twitter to a degree uh, temporarily from Facebook, um, uh, alt alternative social media platforms that he's planning to, uh, to put together to, to bring, bring his base back to him. Um, and then Parler and other uh, uh, Breitbart and uh, 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 One America Network. So all of these, and even Fox News, which is quote unquote mainstream. So there's multi layers of indoctrination, whether it's online and it's extreme conspiracy or, or Fox News, which could be considered quote unquote credible. So on multiple fronts, whether it's online or even traditional media, so these are these are elements that just on a day by day basis just indoctrinate uh, people to to these views. Now, uh, just getting back to diversity in uh, in the executive ranks uh, at these social media companies or or even within government itself, um, as there is probably minimal Muslim or or other uh, people of color or people of multiple different faith backgrounds represented in, in, in government or represented in social media companies. So the, the understanding of, of what this content, how it affects these groups and why is probably not, uh, from my perspective, they don't necessarily see how dangerous it is possibly, 
from from my perspective and possibly minimal sympathy because they don't necessarily understand the implications and and how it's impacting uh, communities like ours. Would that be a fair comment? The lack of diversity in the executive ranks at all these social media and traditional media companies. I I couldn't speak to whether they they have any diversity in their upper ranks, but you know I I would be surprised if they did because you know if they did and they're kind of allowing it to go forward, um you know that'd be that'd be really surprising. I think part of their mindset, if I can put myself into their mindset for just a moment, is they look at Facebook probably as an entirety of a business and look at this hate stuff and and see it as a small subset of their content, right? And, and they're a business. So they're putting, you know, they put as much effort and money into addressing the hate thing as they think makes sense for them as a business. So it's a PR thing. Um, it's uh, a very small subset of what they care about because the end of the day, they, their motive is to generate profit. Their motive is not to change the world or enable democratic participation everywhere or protect free speech for all of their lies that, that those are values they hold, they aren't, they're a business. So fundamentally, I think uh, greater diversity at the executive levels may help take them off that track a little bit, but I think really the solution is more in the lines of hitting them where it hurts, which is in the money. So I think, you know, it's the, it's the really big fines that can have more of an impact, although I'm all for more diversity at the executive levels of these companies. But I think it's, it's, it's an example of, you know, when, when kind of money makes something rotten to its core and government needs to step in to make sure that a corporation starts, stops hurting people. And, and a corporation is, is, uh, has shareholders and uh, every quarter has to post earnings and metrics that, that are better than the quarter previous, the year previous, uh, year over year. And part of the metrics to, to show, at least for these social media companies, is user engagement, uh, the hours of engagement. And, and uh, YouTube in particular is uh, one of their metrics is how, how to keep us engaged as the, the individuals because we are the product. We're not paying for Facebook, YouTube, or any of these platforms, but in essence, our attention is being sold as, as, uh, as uh, a revenue source for the company. And part of what keeps us uh, engaged is content that appeals to us. And if it's hateful content, the algorithms will serve up the content that appeals to that individual and uh, keep them engaged. And they, in part, will sell that attention to advertisers and generate more revenue. So it seems like uh, in their metrics and their their uh, bottom line is the more people are engaged with whatever content uh, those metrics are met, they keep achieving their goals financially as well as the, the user metrics. And as a result, if there's no significantly huge uh, uh, penalties or possible uh, antitrust kind of action against them, uh, it's not likely they're going to change because they have a whole corporate and shareholder uh, uh, accountability, fiduciary responsibility to answer to. And if they're not hit on the bottom line, which will affect the shareholders, they're not going to do anything. It seems like that's possibly the core. If, if their financial bottom line is hit because of the hate content, that could motivate change. Or if there's regulatory antitrust uh, to 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 
to harm the existential nature of their business. Those are the only two areas that team could motivate uh, meaningful change. Would that would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. Um, and we have a chance to do it. I mean, we can pressure them and find them, but we're just like one little country. We're, we're, we're like a really tiny percentage of their user base. But if we're the first domino that like meaningfully falls and then we're followed by the UK, we're followed by Australia, we, we get followed by, you know, eventually as we keep getting followed by other countries taking similar measures, it's going to start to sting, right? And they're going to have to change their, um, their business model a little bit. Part of also what we're asking for in this legislation um, is that uh, the companies have to be kind of, uh, they have to open up their algorithms for review um, so that we can kind of advocate and, and instruct them to build in safeguards so that, uh, yes, the algorithm is supposed to, if you like something, point more of it your way. But when it comes to hate stuff, just nope, just doesn't do that. <laughs> like that would, that would go a long way, right? Where it's, you know, you're, you're watching some video by Stefan Molyneux or Jordan Peterson, and it just says, uh, you know, instead of like next recommended video, it's like, how about you go take a walk outside and maybe call your grandma, <laughs> you know, instead of here's another video of them. Well, well, you brought up another point, and there are companies like uh, Moonshot and and others that uh, have the redirect method, uh, where if somebody's searching for, you know, how do I kill a Muslim or something like that, and they will have their own way to to redirect them to resources that that would be the alternative, you know, something that that would be the counter programming to that search. Um, how effective do you think those strategies would be? I haven't seen any evidence it works. Um, now, theoretically. It might work with a very, very small subset of those people, um, you know. And if we're talking about if a half a percent of the population that get that searches hate stuff and finds something through a redirect method, that that might actually be worth it, even if like because you got to remember percentages of percentages of very large numbers can still be pretty large numbers. So even if it only works like half a percent of percent of the time, that doesn't make it not worthwhile. I just don't see it working on scale because if you take somebody who's who's searching like um i don't know some, some kind of racist search term and instead you ask them like um oh hey would you rather read these materials about how you shouldn't do that <laughs> like how many people are just going to turn around and say oh yeah totally i'll totally read this liberal created guide on how not to hate muslims sure right like so I am pretty skeptical about these um, these these uh, what we would call counter speech um, ideas, where you try to present somebody with an opposite argument. Um, I think that there is a time and a place that counter speech can work, but in terms of somebody just googling hateful stuff and being presented with a different different link to look at, I'm very skeptical about. It. Now, I'm open to reading research that suggests you know that it does work on occasion, but I just haven't seen kind of any compelling evidence that um, that it works. So now um, we in, in, in wrapping up our conversation and where we've kind of culminated, we, we, we know there, there's multiple problems and, and uh, it's great to hear about this legislation here in Canada that uh, that uh, you all have been consulted on. What is the hope for the future uh, to, to leave uh, the viewers and uh, the listeners with with some hope that uh, you know uh, part of this conversation is is allies uh, like us working together in our respective provinces and areas of expertise to address meaningful change. So let's let's talk about some 
some hope for the future and and uh, and what are possible uh, takeaways that 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 could be interesting and and also how um, people can find uh, uh, well there's antihate.ca but but to also to contribute to the work that you do so the takeaways and then how people can can connect with uh, your work as well as contribute to it. Sure. So I've spent five years um, tracking down Nazis, you know, Islamophobes, bad people. And, you know, in some cases, we've managed to shut down some groups, we've managed to shut down, you know, they have hate podcasts, we've managed to shut a few of those down. We've, we've done, we've like, we can, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole, right? But we've whacked quite a lot of whack-a-moles. And that's great. And I'm not saying our work isn't meaningful, because I think we've, we've accomplished some good things there. I think we've kept hate movements marginal. I think we've, by exposing the hate, the really naked hate within hate movements, you know, it prevents some people from getting involved. It prevents some groups from working with each other um, because, you know, there might be two groups that hate Muslims, for example, but the Nazis don't want to work with the non-Nazis and the non-Nazis don't want to work with the full-blown Nazis. So like they're, we're still not talking about great people, but it's good if they're not working together. You know, it's, uh, it kind of keeps them more marginal. So we've had a lot of successes. That being said, what this bill or not, but, but this, what this piece of legislation could accomplish um, could be worth more than what I've spent my last five years doing, right? Even an imperfect piece of this legislation could prevent more hate incidences, could prevent more hate group organizing, could disrupt the hate ecosystem in Canada. This little piece of legislation could do more for that than everything else I've done in the past five years or anything I could do in the next five years. So I think the positive message here is that even if this piece of legislation is imperfect, um, I think it'll be very helpful, right? Even if it's not the silver bullet, even if it's, you know, it's not gonna solve the problem, but by disrupting the hate ecosystem to a certain degree and by reducing the amount of hate online, it's gonna be safer for women, people of color, LGBTQ plus persons, everybody to participate in journalism and politics and to just express an opinion online, right? Once we get the racists and the trolls and the haters and the hate content and the death threats and the rape threats off there, it's gonna be better for everybody who's having conversations just generally, but also in our space, right? So, so that's kind of my positive takeaway here is this piece of legislation, even if it's not perfect, could do a lot. And my call to action here is, there's a lot of organizations working on a lot of things right now. And I'm not gonna take away from any work that anybody else is doing, but I do wanna put kind of an earworm in everybody right now that this piece of legislation is probably the most important thing that's happening in our world in Canada right now. And my call to action around it is, you know, if you've got an organization or you know an organization or you're an advocate yourself or anything, you know, read up, read up on this legislation that's coming out, read up on, on what different groups are, are talking about what we should do about online harms and get ready to advocate. Uh, when the legislation comes out, you know, either to support the parts that are worth supporting or to push the government further if they're not meeting those recommendations to make this a meaningful piece of legislation. So if I can, that's my call to action because we have kind of one shot to make kind of, this is our, this is our best opportunity to make a meaningful change uh, to disrupt the hate ecosystem in Canada. It's, it's the best opportunity I can think of in the last, last five years and we got one shot at it. So that, that's my call to action. It's let's get involved around this one issue um, whatever else you're working on, you know, put some time and effort into this one issue and uh, it'll make a big difference. So to lobby our, our, our MPs and uh, 
more or less to lobby our, our uh, elected representatives to, to support this and, and legislate this, this, uh, this legislation. That would be uh, what we could do in, uh, as, as uh, citizens of Canada, just to kind of rally around a campaign to, to support the legislation that you've referenced. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know if, if we'll necessarily be taking lead on it or some organization, other organization will, but hey, if you got an organization, start your own petition or sign on to another one. You know, um, let's, let's have lobby days. Let's talk to our MPs about why this is important. Uh, if you've been the victim of online hate, harassment, death threats, abuse, um, and you're willing and, and comfortable and safe sharing your story, you know, when that legislation drops, that might be the time to share that story to get the most impact and, and hopefully address it so that other people don't go through that kind of awful stuff in the future. So there's a lot that we can do, um, do together around the time this legislation comes out, but it's just got to be a full court press. Anything you can do, you know, tweet, tweet your MP uh, for a starter, call them, um, chat with, you know, whatever local community organization you're with and say, hey, have we written the government a letter about this yet? And if not, you know, let's, let's write them a quick letter from us too. You know, just full court press. Absolutely. And, and just the, the final takeaway, uh, anti-hate.ca, any other uh, ways to connect um, your, your, maybe your Twitter handle or, or uh, other avenues to connect with yourself and your team and your work and, 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 and also uh, where, where folks can contribute uh, to the great work that you're doing. Sure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're a small organization. So, you know, we don't have a lot of overhead, kind of every buck we get goes to commissioning a story so that we can do more research or shine a light on bad things happening. Or, you know, it'll make the difference whether we have, you know, a fourth staff person or not next year. So like every, every buck that goes to us goes right to something. Um, and if you want to give, uh, we really much appreciate it. And you can do that at antihate.ca slash donate. Um, otherwise, we also have a newsletter. So I mean, maybe you can't follow our social media 24 seven and totally fair. Um, but you can go to our website, antihate.ca, uh, and type in your, um, your email address and your name, uh, and we'll send you an email every week kind of with a roundup of stories, either by us or by others, that we thought were kind of important to read in this kind of anti-hate group space uh, for the week. And of course, we're on social media on both Facebook. Uh, yeah, we're on Facebook. We kind of have to be. Uh, and Twitter uh, at uh, facebook.com slash antihate.ca, um, and Twitter at anti-hate CA. So it's almost like uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center in the north and uh, and you guys are like at the, the Great Wall uh, protecting from the, the White Walkers coming <laughs> into affecting the rest of society. So in essence, it's, it's a great work that you guys are doing and well, I'm on your uh, news, uh, letter. Uh, I get that email right. and I read that. And I really, really enjoy the content and it's very well done. And your website is excellent. So we really uh, highly recommend uh, uh, those that are uh, wanting to follow the great work, antihate.ca. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for, for joining us for this time. And we're looking forward to publish this and share with our audience. Yeah, great. Thank you for the thoughtful questions.